Please remain standing for the reading of the passage. We'll be in Romans chapter 10 and verses 4 through 13. I want to thank Al for picking that hymn. That's one of my all-time favorite hymns. Also, just real quickly, if you have just come in for this service, I wanted to remind you that to look in the bulletin regarding the prayer weekend that's coming up. And we have a, a sign-up table in the foyer to sign up for a time for the, uh, our tw- 48 hours of prayer. All right, Romans chapter 10, verses 4 through 13. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the pre- the, the uh, word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Dear Father, we ask this morning that you would impress on our hearts the miraculous nature of the gift that you have given to us, the gift of righteousness based on faith, righteousness that that we did not have to go find because It belongs only to Christ, and he came to us. Impress also upon our hearts, Father, the power of the word of faith that you have entrusted to us that we might bring it to the world. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you. You Be seated. In December of 1944, just nine months before Japan surrendered to the Allied forces to bring World War II to an end, a young Japanese soldier named Hirao Onoda was sent on a mission together with a band of other elite Japanese soldiers. And the mission was to secure a small airstrip and some port facilities on an island called Labang. This this island was only 16 miles long and 6 miles wide, and it was heavily covered with thick rainforests. Onoda's commander told him when he sent this band of soldiers into this mission that they were not to surrender under any circumstances, and they were not to give up the fight. Well, nine months later, the war ended. A month after that, 
this group of soldiers happened to find a leaflet that had been dropped from an airplane. And the leaflet said that the war had ended. And it was written in Japanese. And they took it to be uh, propaganda from the Allies intended to smoke them out. So they figured they just needed to continue the fight until they heard from an authoritative source. So continue they did. And a couple of months later, they came across another leaflet. This one was signed by the commander of the 14th Army to which they were assigned. And it said that the war had ended and they needed to to give up their arms and come home. And they decided, well, the Allies are getting more clever in in their attempts to smoke us out. And so they, again, decided they needed to continue in the fight just as they had been commanded. Well, over a period of a number of years, the, uh, the, the other soldiers in this little group uh, started to, uh, to go away, either by surrendering or by being killed. And interestingly, after a time, they were being killed by Filipino policemen because they were raiding various, uh, various sites on this island. Uh, what happened then eventually was that Hirao Onoda was the only one left. And he decided that, that he was going to remain faithful to his cause. And he, he did exactly that. In 1974, a Japanese student traveling in the Philippines stumbled across this elderly soldier in the jungle and had a conversation with him. And he told him the war ended a very long time ago. And Onoda said, the only way that I'm laying down my arms is if I hear from my own commanding officer that the war ended. Well, fortunately, this guy's officer from 29 years earlier was still alive. And so the Japanese army hunted him down and they sent him into the jungle to talk to Hirao Onoda and to tell him that the war was indeed over. And at that point, Onoda finally came in. Uh, He is still alive today. He's in his 90s. And he wrote a book that's aptly titled Never Surrender, (laughs) My 30-Year War. Now, no one can question this man's tenacity or his zeal for the cause to which he had been assigned. But there's clearly a strong element of tragedy to his, his story. Because his is the story of a life largely wasted in pursuit of an unattainable goal. A goal that, in fact, had no, it had no basis in reality. He was trying to do something that he could never accomplished. Last week, (laughs) Paul talked about a case of seriously misplaced zeal. He talked about the, the zeal that the Jews had for a righteousness that turned out to be their own righteousness and not the righteousness to which they were called. He said it was a righteousness that was not in accordance with knowledge. And he said that ignoring God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They continued, the Jews continued in fervent pursuit of a goal that they could never reach, a goal that actually had no basis in reality. 
In the passage that we're examining today, Paul reaffirms that man's pursuit of righteousness on the basis of law-keeping has come to an end. And it's come to an end because of Jesus Christ. And then he tells tells us that rather than pursuing a righteousness that we have to muster up from within ourselves, God calls us to place our trust in the righteousness that he has brought to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Where we're going this morning is there, there are about four points that we're going to look at. First in verse four is a, it's a absolutely foundational statement that Paul makes that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And we're going to kind of camp out on that verse for a little while. Then we're going to see in verses five to eight, Christ brings to us the righteousness that is based on faith. We don't have to go looking for it. Then verses 9 and 10, we have been entrusted with the word of faith. And that word is in our mouth and in our heart. And then lastly, whoever believes will be saved. There is no distinction between men when it comes to this gift. First, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That's chapter 10 and verse 4. That verse is, it brings a lot of the theology into play that Paul has already been developing in the previous chapters. It's critically important. And there are two qualifying prepositional phrases in this verse. For righteousness and to everyone who believes. We have to understand why those, why those phrases are, the, phrases are there in order to understand the nature of Paul's claim in this verse. First, Christ did not abolish the law of Moses. In Matthew 5.17, Jesus said, Not one letter nor the smallest stroke of the letter of the law will pass away until all is accomplished. And he said, Whoever teaches a man that the law has been nullified, that man will be least in the kingdom of heaven. So Christ did not abolish the law. But Paul says that Christ put an end to the law for righteousness to those who believe. That is, when he says end to the law for righteousness, the point is, when it comes to how men obtain true righteousness, it is shown not to be on the basis of law-keeping. And Paul is also not saying that the connection between the law and the issue of righteousness has ceased for all men. He's saying that that connection has ceased for those who believe. For those who do not yet believe, the law is still a powerful instrument in the hands of God to convince them of their need for a Savior. It's still a tutor to lead men to Christ. And there's a lot of discussion uh, in the Christian literature about what Paul means by the statement, Christ is the end of the law. That was a, that was a major shock to some of the Jews in Paul's audience, and it's still a shock today to many. Does, does that statement, Christ is the end of the law, mean that Jesus fulfilled the goal or purpose of the law? Does it mean that he satisfied the standard of righteousness required by the law? Does it mean that he put an end to the requirement that men practice the law? Well, I believe the answer is yes. I believe he did all of those things. 
I believe that he fulfilled the evangelistic purpose of the law. He satisfied the righteous standard of the law. And he ended the requirement that men practice the law. And that third point is, is based on the first two. Let's look at those one at a time. The purpose, one of the purposes, a, a fundamental purpose of the law, was to manifest the character of God to fallen sinful men so that as they, as we be, behold the character of God in the law, we find ourselves to be unrighteous. We find ourselves to be incapable of actually doing the law. And that, that recognition of our unrighteousness is what then shows us the need for our Savior, for Jesus Christ. The law proves all men to be condemned. It makes every mouth closed and every man accountable to God. Romans 3, 19 and 20. Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 to 26 is very clear about this evangelistic purpose and about the fact that it's been fulfilled. Paul said, But the Scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. And then he says, Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So that evangelistic purpose of the law is finished for us who believe. Christ also fulfilled the standard demanded by the law. Leviticus 19, verse 2, God said to his people Israel, Therefore you are to be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. That's one of many such statements in the Old Testament. And that standard of God's own perfect holiness and righteousness is and always was the standard reflected in the law of God. In Matthew 5.48, at the end of Jesus' presentation of what kind of righteousness passes muster with God, he says, therefore you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So the standard's the same. Old and New Testament, it has never changed. But the problem is we are utterly incapable of meeting that standard. And as we behold the law, we become convinced of that if we're paying attention. There is one who did keep that standard. There's one who met the standard of the law in all its components and did so perfectly, and that is Jesus Christ. Jesus lived for 33 years as a man. He faced every temptation that was common to man, yet he did so without sin. Jesus is the perfect law keeper, and he's the only perfect law keeper. He's the perfect high priest now for us, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, Hebrews 7.26. See, Jesus was proven righteous by the same law that proved us unrighteous, by the same law that condemned us. And so he is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. And the reason he is the end of the law for righteousness 
is because his righteousness has become ours. So Christ fulfilled the evangelistic purpose of the law. He satisfied the perfect standard of the law. And Christ ended the requirement that men practice the law. Precisely because the law has now been fulfilled in him. What purpose could there be for us to strive to keep a law that only Christ can keep? And the answer is no purpose at all. Throughout this epistle, Paul has been doing battle with the Judaizers. And we talked about this a little last week. The Judaizers insisted that if you had come to faith in Jesus Christ, that that was not in itself enough. You had to become a keeper of the law. You had to be circumcised and you had to observe the commandments and and, uh, ceremonies that are included in the Old Testament law in order to be a legitimate Christian. But Paul is saying here in chapter 10, verse 4 of Romans, that Christ put an end to the requirement for men to practice the commandments and observances in the law of Moses. It's painful to realize that here in the 21st century, there are still Christians demanding that the law of Moses be practiced. And it's, it's perplexing because the New Testament is not unclear about this. This is an emphatic, repeated declaration in the New Testament. It's almost as if God has spent 2,000 years dropping leaflets, declaring the battle in pursuit of righteousness to be over. And yet some in the church still refuse to lay down their imaginary righteousness and to place their trust in the one who alone is righteous, and that is Jesus Christ. And this declaration about Christ being the end of the law applies to all forms of law-keeping, not just to the keeping of the law of Moses. If you go back to chapter 4 of Romans, Paul was very, very clear that this goes beyond just the law of Moses. In fact, he went back to Abraham to show that Abraham was justified by faith in the promise of God 500 years before the law existed before Moses was ever a gleam in his father's eye. Law-keeping cannot and will not make men righteous in the eyes of God. Now, I know this may sound like old hat by now, but this is as fundamental to our faith as it gets. And it's a point that, that many in the name of Christ continue to reject and dispute. Now, Ask again, did Christ put an end to the law of Moses in every respect? No, he did not. Matthew chapter 5, again, Jesus' words. We cannot deny that Jesus said the law will never be abolished. And we have not been exempted from the requirement to comply with the law of Moses. That law is still in effect as a reflection of God's righteous character. But because Jesus is the only true law keeper... The one and only way that you and I ever come to comply with the requirement of God's law is because we are found to be in Christ and He is found to be in us. That's it. There is no other way. If you're looking for another way, you won't find it. It does not exist. If you waste your life looking for another way, that's exactly what your life will be, wasted. Because there is no other way. 
for us to have righteousness. The question isn't, has the law been abolished? The question is, how do we actually come to comply with the intent of the commandments contained in the law? And the answer is, we don't. Christ does. All right. What that means then is that because we're in Christ and Christ is in us, the specific commandments contained in the law are no longer our concern. Our concern is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and to love our neighbor as ourselves. That is the spirit, the intent of the law. That is that that Jesus declared it, Paul declared it. To love the Lord and to love your neighbor is the fulfillment of the law. And only Christ can do that in us as he lives his life out through us. So, real quick before I move on, is there still any value for us as Christians to study and to know the law of Moses? Well, if you know me, you know my answer to that. And the answer is an emphatic yes. King David said, the law of the Lord is perfect. He said, I delight in the law of the Lord. You see, we get to delight in the law in a way that someone who has not been justified by faith can never delight in it. Because the law no longer condemns us. We can now see the law of God with different eyes, with the eyes of faith. We can look into the law and we can behold the character of our Savior and our Master and our God. And the law is a beautiful thing because it shows us its principle by example. It shows us how God's character works itself out in our relationship with Him and with each other. Is that worth knowing? Yeah. And, and there's a, there's a, it's vivid, it's concrete, it gives us very great value indeed. Alright. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And in verses 5 through 8, Christ brings to us the righteousness that is based on faith. So that we don't have to go find it. We don't have to somehow ferret it out. In the rest of this passage, Paul expands on what he just said in verse 4. In effect, he's explaining how it is that men obtain the righteousness that's based on faith. And to do so, he first sets up a contrast in verses 5 through 8 between the righteousness based on law and the righteousness based on faith. Verse 5, he points back to Moses again. And he says, Moses writes that the man who practices, and that word means does, the righteousness based on law shall live by that righteousness. So there's a promise that if you do the law, you live. And that's not a new promise. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 4 and 5, God said to Israel, you are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes, to live in accord with them. I am Yahweh your God. And then he said, so you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am Yahweh. Deuteronomy 30, this is a passage we're going to look at in some detail this this morning. Verses 15 and 16. God said, See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity, in that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways, and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to possess it. So in Romans 10.5, when Paul says, if, if you obey the commandments, you will live. That if you, that if you 
uh, keep the righteousness based on law, you will live. He's, he's simply restating what's been stated many times before. But here's the problem. That's not what happened, right? If Israel had obeyed God's commandments, they would live and multiply and prosper and be blessed in the land, and that's not what happened. At the end of uh, the period of Israel's occupation of the land, in fact, long after, 70 years after Judah had been taken away into captivity and when they were now coming back out of captivity into Jerusalem to, to try to do some rebuilding, Nehemiah had the Levitical priests um, review Israel's history for them. And he went through, the, the priests went through Many, many instances of God's faithfulness toward his people. It showed how over and over and over God showed compassion and forbearance and and covenant steadfastness to his people. But at every point in their history, they were also reminded of how grievously they failed to respond to God's faithfulness. Nehemiah 9, verses 28 and 29, when... They, Israel, cried again to you, God. You heard from heaven, and many times you rescued them according to your compassion and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which, if a man observes them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck, and they would not listen. So Israel did not obey, and they did not live long in the land. The reason they failed is very simple. It's because the righteousness based on the law is unattainable. The life and blessing that God promised to those who do the things commanded in the law will never by known never be known by anyone except one man, and that's Jesus Christ. And it will be known Beyond him only by those who are in him because he is the only lawkeeper. And here I believe is the heart of Paul's argument about the relationship between lawkeeping and life. He who keeps the commandments of the law of Moses will live because his lawkeeping will prove him righteous. Problem is, no one is capable of keeping the commandments of the law. The law instead proves us all unrighteous. So no one, by law-keeping, will ever actually live. Okay, simple enough. Righteousness and life based on law are out of reach. You can spend, expend all the effort you want to trying to go after that version of righteousness, and you will never reach it. But the resolution to this terrible dilemma is not unsearchable or unreachable. The true way of righteousness and life is not something we have to go after at all. Paul said earlier in this chapter that the Jews, uh, in chapter 9, he said, the Jews pursued righteousness and did not find it, did not attain it, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. And he said the Gentiles, who didn't pursue righteousness at all, they attained it. But they didn't find it, it found them. In verses 6 through 8, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 30. 
And he says, but the righteousness based on faith speaks thus. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the abyss to bring Christ up from the dead? But what does it say? It says the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. And here's where the connection between Old and New Testament gets amazing. In Deuteronomy 30, where those words came from, Paul takes those words and he modifies them. We're going to compare to see how he modified them. But back in the passage where those words came from, God told Israel to choose life by loving him and keeping his commandments. And in that very same passage, he told them that they would fail to do so. In Deuteronomy 30, that passage is the end of a series of passages from chapters 28 to 30 about the blessings and curses. A very short section on the blessings, a very long section on the curses, because that's what Israel would actually experience. And then God says, when you have experienced the full measure of the curses because of your disobedience, then I'm going to do something that you could never do. He says, If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord God will gather you, and from there He will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. And then in verse 8 he says, And you shall turn and obey the Lord and observe all his commandments which I command you today. Wow. (laughs) Now let's look at that in a little more detail. What is it that would one day cause Israel to turn and obey the Lord and to comply with what his commandments required? It's not a what, it's a who. It's God. God would make it happen. Now, immediately after God makes that promise, in the same passage, he says, this is the passage that Paul is quoting. He says, For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us? And look at this. And make us hear it that we may observe it. And he says, nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to go get it and make us hear it that we may observe it. And he says, but the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. When Israel finally comes to be righteous in the eyes of God to meet the perfect standard of righteousness that the law requires, it will be because God did for them what they could never do for themselves. They won't have to go after God's righteousness. They won't have to to ascend to heaven to bring it down. They know they can't do that. So it's interesting there in Deuteronomy 30, it says, who will we send to go get it and bring it down to us? And make us observe it.
Israel won't have to go after it. They'll find that the word of God is written in their hearts and their mouths because God put it there. They will no longer look for rules to tell them how to live because they will know how to live because they will know God. That's the promise of the new covenant. When Paul quotes Deuteronomy 30, he does an amazing little change up. And this is, to me, just divinely brilliant what he does here. In this passage in Romans 10, 6 through 8, what is, what is the it that you don't have to go after? Well, it's not an it, it's a who. It's Christ, right? You don't have to go up to heaven and get him and bring him down. You don't have to go down to the grave and bring him up because he took care of all that. He came to us. But in Deuteronomy 30, what is the it that you don't have to go after? It's the commandments contained in the law. And in Deuteronomy 30, it says, who shall we send to go get it, to bring it down, so that then we will be made to obey it? (laughs) Paul takes the it and the who, and he replaces both of them with Jesus Christ. He says, you don't have to go after the commandment, because the purpose of the commandment, your understanding of the commandment was, this is how you will find righteousness. And the point is, you will never find righteousness based on the keeping of the commandments. Instead, the righteousness of God has come down to you and it has come down in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the perfect law keeper. He is the one who does it all. He's the it and the who of righteousness. I don't know. I I find that amazing. We don't need anyone to go get righteousness for us. Because the one who is our righteousness has been given to us. He has come to us and he has saved us who were lost. By God's doing, we are in Jesus Christ. And the word concerning this righteousness based on faith is now in our mouths and in our hearts. Paul says in Verse, uh, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Now, Paul's point here is not to add another step, another condition to salvation. It's amazing to me sometimes how quickly our minds turn from grace to works. We ferret through the passages that that talk about the gospel, the gift of salvation, and we find things to create a list from. And so we say you have to repent and you have to believe and you have to confess and you have to be baptized and you have to obey. And all of a sudden, that which is supposed to be Christ-centered is now turned back to being man-centered. That's not what Paul's talking about here. (laughs) Paul's whole point is that by God's doing, the word of faith in Jesus Christ is in our hearts and our mouths and it cannot be contained. He's setting the stage for what he's about to say regarding how beautiful the feet are 
of those who bear glad tidings, who bear the gospel to other people. And his point is, we don't have to go seek righteousness because God has sent his righteousness to us. He has given us righteousness as a gift in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has filled our hearts and our mouths with the word of this gift so that we can do nothing other than proclaim it. In verses 11 to 13, Paul turns our attention to the faith on which true righteousness is based, and he tells us who gets to have it. (laughs) He says, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In verse 11, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. Whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. If you flip backward just a little bit at the end of chapter 9, you'll see he already cited that same verse. When he was talking about the Jews pursuing righteousness on the wrong basis, he says they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. In Isaiah 28.16, what you find is a passage about judgment. It's a warning to Judah that judgment is coming from God because of their unfaithfulness. But in the midst of that passage, there's this promise where God says, I will lay in Zion a costly cornerstone. And then he says, whoever believes will not be disturbed, will not be disappointed. And Paul finishes, he, he adds the object. He says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Isaiah 28:16 The cornerstone that satisfies the righteousness of God and frees us from his wrath is Jesus Christ. And the wording that Isaiah uses is 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 vivid and and I find it beautiful. Because in Isaiah, when he says, whoever believes will not be disappointed, the word, the Hebrew word for disappointed means in a hurry. Whoever believes will not be in a hurry. When the judgment of God comes, if you are standing on his cornerstone, on Jesus Christ, you won't be in a hurry to go anywhere else because you will be in the one and only place that exists that makes you free from his judgment. Whoever believes will not be disappointed. And he says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. It's a very simple declaration, but again, very powerful. Why is it there's no distinction between one kind of person and another when it comes to the to this free gift, it's because there's only one Lord. There's only one God, and that God doesn't change. He is Lord of all. And then look at the, 
the benevolence of this Lord, of this Master, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. That discussion in the worship this morning about the prodigal son made me think of this. When that boy left home, he asked his father for all the the wealth that he thought was his portion that belonged to him. And where did he end up? Where did he end up? He ended up wallowing in mud with pigs. He ended up discovering the poverty of his own heart. And he came back to his father because he knew that even the hirelings, even the servants in his father's household had plenty. Well, what what we receive from the hand of our Lord and Master, uh, of our Lord and Savior, when we simply come in faith and receive his gift is a, an abundance of riches. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 7 says that we'll spend the rest of eternity with him showing us the surpassing riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And we'll never get to the end of those riches. And then Paul finishes this declaration in verse 13 by saying, Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Are you still zealously pursuing a righteousness of your own? If you are, then your life is a tragedy. Because God has said that he already won that war. He's told us that we don't have to go after righteousness. In fact, nothing that we do in the attempt to go after righteousness will accomplish anything. And he's told us that his righteousness has come to us in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And that which he calls us to do is to receive the righteousness which is based on faith. To simply take him at his word. Believe his promise. Trust in his son only for eternal life. If you're a believer and you continue to struggle in any sense with the notion that you contribute something to the righteousness, the righteous standing that you have before God, whatever it is that that makes you think that is a complete lie. Just give it up. It, It will serve no purpose. There's, God intended for us to have great, great joy in our relationship with him. He said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know why? Because Jesus is the one who bore it. Believe him. Trust him. Abandon self and be all about Jesus Christ. And you will know the joy of your salvation. Because whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Father, thank you for this morning, for the, again, the power of these passages that we've been examining. Father, if there's anyone here today who does not know Jesus Christ as his Savior or her Savior, pray that that person will flee from any notion that they have a way to make themselves righteous in your eyes and that they will simply trust in the gift that you have given, that they'll believe in Jesus Christ.
and be saved as you promise they will. We pray for us who are your children that we will we will be overwhelmed with your grace and with the freeness of your gift and that we will find that We can do nothing other than to proclaim your marvelous gift to those who do not yet know it and have not received it. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our righteousness. We pray it for his sake. Amen.